Today, I was trying to think about what I should talk about. There's so many things to talk about when it comes to Jesus, but it's Baptism Sunday, if you didn't notice. If you didn't notice, that's concerning because we just had an awesome celebration of 10 baptisms this morning. Uh, So that is a huge celebration, but we're also celebrating much more than just a ritual of baptism. Uh, Baptism is such a central part of what we as Christians choose to uh, show the world what we want people to see when they look at us. It's such a central part of that. But yet, we don't really talk about what baptism really means for us beyond the day of. It doesn't show how the Spirit is working within us because we don't really talk about it. We just kind of assume that everyone's on the same page. But the reality is there's a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of disagreements about baptism. So today, I want to look into the chapter of Mark 1 and really delve into how that gospel and how Jesus shows baptism to be something so much more than just an excuse for our pastors to throw some water on people. Um, And so before we get into that, I want to start with the basics. The word baptism comes from a word called baptismo. That's not really a linguistic stretch of the imagination there. Baptismo, baptism. And the word literally means to wash or to cleanse. So in the most basic sense, you're just washing something when you're baptizing it. Like, for instance, when I prepared dinner last night, I baptized my potatoes before I cooked them, and I baptized my car not as often as I should, but every once in a while. And that's literally what the word means, but we don't think about it like that all the time uh, because there's so much more to it when we refer to baptism. But before I read Mark chapter 1 here, I want us to, uh, to, to do something that we probably don't do very often in church, and uh, Hopefully you can bear with me as I ask you to do this, but before we get into Mark chapter 1, I will be reading the whole chapter, and I want you to forget everything that you've ever heard about Jesus Christ. Just completely forget Jesus. Act like this is the first time you're hearing about this guy, because Mark chapter 1 is written in such a way that it's supposed to be a slap in the face, this dramatic identity revealing, this is Jesus, this is why, this is exciting, this is important, this is immediate, let's go. And so I want us to be able to ditch some presuppositions, some theological baggage that we may have when we come to Scripture, and just start with a fresh, a new, and an empty plate so that we can come and receive the Scripture in a new way, much like the way that the people for whom this was originally written 2,000 years ago would have felt that. So take a moment, just blank slate. This is the first time we're hearing about this, and enter into a posture, whether that's eyes closed, uh, laying down, kneeling, standing, whatever way you feel comfortable receiving Scripture, go ahead and prepare ourselves for this. So Mark chapter 1, the entire thing, here we go. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I is coming after me, and I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus Galilee, and he was baptized in the Jordan by John. And as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending in him 
like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And as he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not like one of the scribes. Scribes. Just then, a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue, and he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Shut up, get out of him. The unclean spirit threw the man into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and then came out of him. And they were all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee, and as soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. And so he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the neighboring villages, so that I might preach there too, for this is why I have come. He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons, and then a man with leprosy came to him on his knees and begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you tell no one to any, anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest, and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news, with the result that Jesus could no longer enter to a town openly. But he was in a deserted place, and they came to him from everywhere. There's a lot of stuff happening in that chapter. And there's so much to unpack this morning, but I want to focus specifically on the baptism and the immediately, immediate reality that comes to Jesus as a result of that partnership with the Spirit that we get through his baptism. And so the thing I love about Mark is that he's very straightforward. You got a lot of immediately, you got a lot of very short sentences, and so much happened so fast. A lot happened. It's very straightforward. In fact, the title of his book tells us exactly what he's going to tell us. The title of the book is not the Gospel of Mark. That's just what we've decided to call it way after it was written. When it was first written, the title of the Gospel of Mark was actually verse 1 
which is this. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the title of the book. And if we think how titles work, we know that he's not just referring to the first phrase. He's not just referring to the first chapter. He's referring to the whole book of Mark. The whole book of Mark from the baptism to the death and resurrection. That is the beginning of what Jesus Christ is doing here on earth. Spoiler alert, he's still doing stuff right now. That's just the beginning. And so I challenge you at some point this week to take a Sabbath hour or two and turn off all your medias and just read Mark from start to finish. And with that experience, you'll get the gospel in a way that we probably don't experience it every day. It's just so awesome to see how Mark ties the baptism through the whole story of Mark. So my challenge to you for this week. But in his title, Mark is calling this Jesus guy the anointed one. Christ, that's what it means. Christ, Messiah, anointed one, and the Son of God. And so think about this. If we're some Jewish folks who have been looking forward to this Messiah guy for hundreds of years, this is the guy we've hoped for. This is the guy we've wanted because we know he's going to change everything. And so Mark is telling us he's finally here. That would be like me coming up today and telling you, well, Jesus has come back because they look forward to him then, much in the same way that we look forward to him again today. And I would bet that if I came here and told you that Jesus has come back, not a whole lot of you would believe me. But for those of you who did believe me, what you would probably ask me is, well, what's he going to do? What's he going to do first? So that's my question for Mark today is, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. What's he going to do first? And the first thing he does is get baptized. You'd think that the Son of God would have bigger fish to fry than, you know, get dunked by John. But he does this. He goes to the Jordan, and he gets baptized baptized. You see, Matthew and Luke, they kind of start their gospels focusing on the genealogy of Jesus and showing that Jesus' identity is rooted in his genealogy with David, King David, right? They show that his identity is the child of Mary and Joseph. But Mark skips all that. He doesn't think it's important. What he does focus on is Jesus' identity as a baptized child of God. Because when Jesus is baptized, we got that scene where the heavens split open the dove came down into Jesus and a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. That's so incredible. That is a powerful title, the beloved son of God. Imagine. That's a good title. See, titles back then work a lot like titles today work, or at least we use titles in the same way. And so we all have our own titles, we all have our own labels, and these titles and labels inform us how we're supposed to act in society. So for instance, you might be a a carpenter, or a surfer, or rich or poor, homeless, a single parent, married, divorced, you know, grandparent, CEO, pastor, labor, whatever it is, you know, there are all these labels, and we use them to tell us how to act and how to live. That's what we do with these. If you are this, then you must be and do that. Suffocating. But today, we see Jesus show us a different identity. Today, Jesus invites us into the same identity that he was invited into that day, beloved child of God. That is the only identity we have to worry about when it comes to figuring out how we have to act. And so I ask you today, what if you traded in your identities, your job, your family's expectations of you, your friends' expectations of you, whatever labels you feel like you have and have to be confined by, what if you traded those in for the title of child of God. That was your only identity. Sure, you might still 
have all of those things as part of your life. So let's say you're a carpenter. Well, you're not a carpenter anymore. You're a child of God who can build stuff. So the question no longer becomes, who am I? We as Christians have the joy of not having to worry about that question. We don't have to wonder, who am I? Am I valuable? Am I loved? We don't have to worry about those. Of course we are. Of course we're valued. Of course we're loved. So we are a child of God. That's not the question. The question is, how do we use all this other stuff in our life, our identities, our titles, our labels, all these things, trade that in for the child of God. How do we use those to glorify God? How do we use those to point to our true identity as children of God and the world looks different when we stop being confined by these labels and we start celebrating our true identity as a child of God? It's powerful, powerful stuff. And last week, Pentecost, Pastor Matt asked a question that really stuck with me. He asked, what if we could realize this identity as a child of God again? What if we could remember it? What if we could realize it? What if we could live into it? And what if we could share it? What if this identity was that powerful in our lives? What would that look like? Today I'm saying that Mark chapter 1 gives us a really good picture at how Jesus shows us what it's like to realize, to live into, and to share this identity. So let's go through it a little bit. So after his baptism, these three things immediately happen for Jesus. Realize, live into, share that identity. First, he realized his identity as the Son of God through the baptism. Remember the voice from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Let's compare and contrast that with Moses. Remember Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush? God's in a burning bush because that's the kind of stuff that God does. And he calls out to Moses and he says, you are this person that I need to go do this thing. This is who you are. I've chosen you. And Moses says five times, no, that's not me. That's not who I am, God. I'm not your man. Find somebody else. I'm not good enough. That's not who I am. Jesus, he gets, this is who I am. He gets it. And he's like, all right, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get to work. He goes right in. He realizes that identity. And realizing something doesn't just mean to be made aware of it. It means to cause it to become real. It is made real when it's realized. So he realized his identity by making it real, and immediately he went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. And this is the part that we don't really talk about because we have no idea what to do with it. Verse 13, probably my favorite verse in the whole book of Mark. It's awesome. So if you do have your Bibles or whatever you want to turn to it, go for it. Uh, It's what we just kind of skim past. I'll give you a minute to get there. Verse 13, we get this weird this weird scene where Jesus is hanging out in the wilderness and there are wild beasts there and there are angels serving him and he's out in the wilderness and we're like, what's going on? And so we don't know what to do with it so we just kind of keep on going. But if we pause for a moment and we understand that every sentence in the Bible is very, very intentional, we get a whole different response. Jesus is in the wilderness with these wild beasts, with the wild beasts and these are not rabbits. These are not squirrels. These are not the stuff that we imagine as Williams Porters to be wild beasts, right? These are like lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, like Judean wilderness, I'm going to eat you wild beasts. And he's hanging out with them peacefully. And the angels are there. There's this alignment between the realms of heaven and earth in peace. And that's intentional right after God's gift of the Spirit unto Jesus, this partnership with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Because the claim he's making here is a real partnership with the Spirit looks like a restoration of creation the way it was supposed to be. Back up to Genesis chapter 1. This is what Mark is hyperlinking to. That alignment of heaven and earth in verse 13, that is made real, that is realized when we 
get that identity, when we understand that identity as a child of God. We don't have to be these superficial things anymore. We don't have to be confined or constrained by people's expectations because we are invited into the identity of a child of God. And there's so much power within that, that a restoration of creation happens when we confirm that identity. How powerful is that? And so secondly, Jesus lives into his identity as a child of God. He realized it through his baptism, and he's living into it because right after that wilderness scene, he goes off into a bunch of towns, and he starts beating up demons and casting out illnesses from people and just causing a full assault on all that evil is in this world. And what he's showing this there is that this partnership with the Spirit changes everything, not just about who we are, but it changes everything about what we do with the world around us. There is no such thing as a bench-warming, lukewarm partnership with the Spirit. You either live into that identity by being opposed to injustice in all of its forms everywhere, or you're not. That's what Jesus is showing us here. Realizing, living into, sharing. Jesus shared his identity with first his disciples and used that community to share it with the world in a very powerful way. In verse 15, he says, Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe. That's all he says. That's how he shares his identity. His identity as one who was just partnered with the Spirit, as a child of God, what does he do with it? He destroys evil, and he shares his identity by saying, the kingdom is near. As in, there is an alignment between heaven and earth. God's kingdom is here with this partnership. What should we do about it now that the kingdom is near? Repent and believe. Repent has always been one of those scary Bible words for me. I always heard repent, and I'm like, oh, somebody's in trouble, and I don't know what to do with this word. And I never liked it because I'm not a confrontational person, and it sounds like a confrontational word. And I also couldn't use it in my day-to-day life, so I just kind of skimmed past it. But then I learned what repent really means. Repent isn't this just weird, only Bible word. It actually literally means turn around. That's what the word repent means, turn around. As in like, I'm going this way, I'm repenting, I'm now going this way. That's as simple as it is, and that's what Jesus is inviting us into. And it's so useful for daily life. Just think about how to spice up your vocabulary with that. You know, going into Aldi, you see the produce line here. Have you ever noticed this in Aldi? Any Aldi shoppers? Yes, awesome. Produce right here. What's right next to the produce? Candy right? Tons of candy. And so when my wife and I go to Aldi, she's heading for the kale, I'm heading for the candy. Now, she could just say no, right? But how boring is that? She's got a new vocabulary in her arsenal. Repent! (laughs) I'm going to notice that a lot more. Repent of your glucose-saturated transgressions and come back to the kale. That's what it's going to happen. And I'm going to remember that a lot more, right? And so this is such a usable word, and this is what Jesus is asking us to do today. Repent and believe. This is how we get into the kingdom. This is how we build the kingdom here through us. Turn around and trust. Repent and believe. We just wrapped up a sermon series called Nudge, which shows us and tells us and explains how it looks for us to nudge the people around us into a life with God and how evangelism can be a little different than sometimes we expect. I just want to pause here for a moment to bring recognition to the fact that evangelism is not a one-person job. Nudging is not a one-person job. We think that, oh, now that 
we've been convicted to nudge people around us, it's all on me. But no, this is a community, as we've just witnessed through the celebration of baptism, together in making those vows. This is a community. And so if there's somebody on your heart or your mind that you're like, oh man, I really feel like I'm supposed to present my identity to this person in a certain way, but you just don't know how to start it, ask. Come for help. Come for prayer. Like, this is why we are here in community. This is one of the first things Jesus does in his ministry is he gets a community of people around him so that he can help them share their new identity and so that they can share their identity together. So please just ask either staff or just each other. Let's do this together. But back to Jesus cultivating that community. First thing Jesus does when he's calling disciples, he says, follow me, right? Repent, turn around, and then follow me even if it's to the kale. Uh, and so he says that we have a choice this morning. Do we, do we sit and wait for a kingdom of heaven, which is going to come after we die? Do we sit and wait for the pearly gates? Or do we actively get up and follow God and bring kingdom here? That's what Jesus is inviting us into as we realize we share, we live into this identity. That is what we're doing. Just follow me. And look at how effective that is. Talk about multiplying disciples. Jesus said, follow me to a couple fishers in Galilee 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, in a language that didn't even exist in Jesus' time. Here we are today on Baptism Sunday, talking about how we can partnership with the Spirit the same way that he did. That blows my mind. If that is not an encouragement of what it's like to live in this beautiful community, I, I don't know what is. So that is so, so cool. In fact, I... I was baptized when I was 17, and I, did, I knew what it meant, but I didn't really know what it meant, you know? Um, but what I did feel was the community. Today, even what I believe about baptism is changing constantly as God continues to work within me. But what I did feel when I was at that, at that poolside, when my dad baptized me in that community, what I felt was the love and the support. What I felt was that there's a new chapter and a new change, and that's what we can do today, and that's what we can celebrate today, together. We're not, we're not doing this alone. We're not nudging. We're not evangelizing. We're not being baptized alone. We're in this community for the kingdom of God to be here in power now. It is not an after-death thing. Baptism is not a ticket into heaven. That's not what Jesus is showing us today. Jesus is showing us that baptism causes an immediate personal growth, an immediate community growth, and an immediate victory over evil here and now in this kingdom of God. And so the question now that we have as children of God is what are we waiting for? Amen.